think the most annoying word in the English language is? Why, that is correct. Could be mine, some, there could be some in the running, or no, if you're a toddler, right? A parent of a toddler, or have had toddlers. But I think, from my recollection, when our kids were younger, one of the most annoying words that was asked over and over and over and over again was, why? So see if any of these sound familiar. Daddy, why it raining today? Now, you can take, you have a few options in this situation, right? You can take the simplistic route and say something like, well, the grass needs to grow, and so therefore that's why it's raining today. Meg reminded me that I never chose to take the simplistic route with those, and they would ask, why it rained, Daddy? And I would say something like, well, you see, when you live near an ocean, the probability of precipitation increases because there's a higher percentage of evaporation off of large bodies of water. And so when you look at the ocean currents in the North Pacific and our proximity to the coastal mountain ranges, we have a higher level of condensation. And then as the temperature rises, as the clouds move to this, the condensation eventually falls to the earth as rain and precipitation. So that's why it's raining today. Doesn't always work with a two-year-old, does it? Or they get a little bit older, and then you get into the cycle of the questions of why, right? Where you respond, and then they respond with why as their answer to that. Why do I have to go to school today? Well, because you need to learn. This is your job. Uh, you need to get a good education, and then it can, begins the slippery slope. Well, why? Why do I need to get a good education? Well, why do I need to learn? Well, because people with a good education have a statistically higher chance of succeeding in life. You see what I did there? I tried to cut it off at the past by using the word statistically so that why maybe could disappear. Well, why do people with a good education statistically end up succeeding in life? <sighs> deep breaths, deep breaths. Well, because... Most of the jobs go to responsible people who didn't skip school all of the time. Why? Because I said so, that's why. <laughs> that's usually how it ends up, doesn't it? And why, even though it can be a very annoying word, it also can be a very powerful word, can't it? Because it can unlock something that is below the surface. You have to dig a little bit deeper when you start to ask why? It gets us thinking and probing more deeply about the real questions in our world and in our own lives. And so sometimes when a kid is asking why, what they're doing is they want to understand better the reason or the rationale behind the instruction or request or behind the phenomenon. And if they understand it better, then they're okay to move on with it. And if it's an instruction, if they understand it better, sometimes they can uh, obey better. And the same is actually true when we come to the scriptures and the Bible. And we want to try and understand why God put certain things into uh, writing for us to know. What does God want us to be? What does he want us to know? What does he want us to do? And if we ask, well, why did God put this here or say it in this way, it can be a helpful exercise because you dig a little bit deeper beneath the surface and figure out what God is saying to you today. So that's why we open up God's word every weekend here at Jericho Ridge so we can intentionally put ourselves in a position where we're open and ready as individuals and as a community to receive uh, what it is that God 
wants to uh, express to us and we can express our desire to God to act on that in obedience. So let's pray as we look into God's word this morning. God, we are grateful uh, for this opportunity today to come to this place, to engage with others, to engage with you in worship, uh, to respond to your word. And so I pray you'd give us open hearts to hear, open ears to hear what it is that you're saying to each and every one of us in this place today. And God, would you also grant us the willingness to respond to the things that you are teaching us. We pray that we would not just listen, but that we would actually do the things uh, that you're calling us to do as individuals and as a community of faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this fall, we've been in the book of James, which is a highly pragmatic book. It answers a lot of good why questions. And our series has been called Mirror, Mirror. And that is because in the book of James, James continuously asks us and challenges us to look at our own lives like we're looking at ourselves in a mirror and to conduct honest self-assessment about what's going on in our lives. And to see, James continuously brings us back to say, not just what do you see, but what are you going to do about it? Are you living in congruence with what you say you believe? And James was a leader in the early Christian movement. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And so he had a front row seat to a lot of what was going on in the early development of the Christian church as the church was forming. And so James saw the church in the first century wrestle with integrating people from various cultural backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, non-Jewish backgrounds, and the tension that that caused in the life of the community. He watched the church come together from various socioeconomic backgrounds. And remember in chapter two, he had to write to them and talk to them about, you can't treat rich people and people who are poor differently in the way in which you organize yourselves. And so he had to really address some of the challenges and tensions that were there. And he had to talk to people about various cultural histories, various religious backgrounds. So it's natural that he's writing to a group that has a vast diversity of both experiences, but also opinions. And it's natural then that in a place where there's a diversity of opinion, that there'd be some forms of conflict. And so at the start of chapter four, James begins by asking a good question, a good why question. And he says, why are you fighting? about these things. Look with me at James chapter four, verses one and the first part of verse two. I'm reading from the New Living Translation and you can follow along up on the screens. James chapter four, verse one says, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Why are you fighting? See, James is writing to a group of people that are in conflict. There's verbal spats that are going on. Bitter controversies that are bringing out self-interest and rivalries and jealousy. And we don't know a lot about what the issues were. James doesn't concern himself with the issues. He concerns himself with the behavior that's on display and the selfish spirit that's going on. And he asks the questions of them. He says, why are you quarreling? Now, usually, if somebody asked me, 
this question, my impulsive response is, why am I fighting? It's because the other person is wrong and stupid. That is the answer to the question, why are we getting into it? If they would just come over to my side and see things exactly how I see them, we wouldn't be quarreling at all. So the problem is them. The problem has nothing to do with me. But James says that's actually not the case. It's not the source of these issues. James says arguments are wars or conflicts that are born not out of righteous passion or justifiable zeal. He says these are born out of selfish, indulgent desires that are not being met in our lives. I'm personally challenged by what teaching pastor George Stulak says about this passage. He says, oftentimes when we're fighting, we try to justify our role in fights in terms of the high ideals and the critical issues and the injured rights that we are supposedly defending. But James doesn't entertain any such talk. He drives right to the fact that these fights are, at bottom, about personal desires. And his point is very reminiscent of what he was talking about in James chapter 1, 14, where he refused to allow excuses for people being tempted and saying, oh, the devil made me do it. He says, no, you got to own that personal uh, choice that was made to enter into and entertain temptation. People are tempted, James said in chapter 1, when by their own desires they are drawn away. And so this is the exact same language that James is using here in chapter 4. We get into fights because pleasures we desire for ourselves. And so an important self-examining question for Christians in conflict is what personal desire Am I trying to protect or to gain? What personal desire am I trying to protect or to gain? James doesn't specify examples of the desires. What he could say could refer to a group uh, in conflict, in relationships, inflexibility about issues, a desire to have one's own way, maneuvering for positions of authority from a desire for status or affirmation within the community, criticizing others or with a desire undergirding that to make myself look good. Um, it's equally applicable what James is talking about here in individual relationships. When we get into conflicts in marriages, constantly exchanging hurtful words out of a desire to get even, or James says this can lead to, uh, he uses an image which we'll come to in a few minutes, even a sexual unfaithfulness from a desire for selfish pleasure. So James is saying whether it's a verbal argument, whether it's violent behavior, whether it's a national or international conflict, it can be traced back at its roots to a frustrated desire to want something that we don't have. Sometimes, we want things that we don't have that are good and that are right. And that's all right. That's not a conflicted quarreling. Sometimes we want things that come from another place, though. And so James is going after that and saying, my selfish desires, wanting what I don't have, can give birth to other things in my life, like quarreling and jealousy and scheming. And when it bubbles over into this arena, it can get verbal, it can get even physical, it can get into an international conflict. And this is the wrong way to go about getting things, James says. 
But our motives, that's not the only unfortunate thing that can stem from our motives. Let's keep reading in James chapter four, verses two, second part of verse two, and then into verse three. James says, yet you don't have what you want. Even after you fight and quarrel and argue about it, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God for it, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what's going to give you pleasure. So if the first question James says is, why are you quarreling? The second question might be phrased as, why do some prayers go unanswered? Now, this is, a, this is a complicated question, and James isn't trying to address all of those factors in this text. It's multifactorial, but what he is saying is that sometimes when we pray for something, we don't pray with the right motives. And sometimes when we um, don't pray with the right motives, God is quite gracious and actually chooses not to give us what we're asking him for. Those who have or are around, again, toddlers might be able to identify with this strategy because James has already talked about the fighting that's going on interpersonally and the individuals have come to the place where they've said, fine, you're not going to give me what I want. I'm just going to pray about it. I'm going to over-spiritualize it. I'm going to talk to God about it. I'm going to go over your head and think about this. And so this, when we pray, sometimes we aren't actually praying like Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here in my life, here on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes we're saying not so subtly in our prayers, God, I haven't got what I want through my own initiative or resources, so now I need you to give it to me. Sometimes we are really blind to our own true motivations and we don't even know that we're praying with tainted motives. Some years ago, an interviewer sat down uh, with country music superstar Garth Brooks and he asked him about his song, Unanswered Prayers. This is an old song, like 1990. And the song is based actually on a story from Garth Brooks' own life. One day, Uh, he went back to the place where he grew up in Oklahoma to a football game back in his hometown. And he saw an old high school flame, a relationship that he'd had in high school. And he remembered about the fact that at the time when he was dating her in high school, he was so convinced that she was the one for him. But at that football game, as he looked back on his life and that period in his life and as he examined his motives and he examined the journey that he'd been on and who God had led him to and all of those things, he says this in the lyrics and he describes this actually as the truest song that he had ever been involved with as a songwriter. And he says, remember in the chorus when you're talking to the man upstairs, reference to prayer and talking to God, that just because God doesn't answer doesn't mean he doesn't care because some of God's greatest gifts are all too often unanswered. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. 
Brooks looked at his life and said, I was praying about that relationship. I was praying it would go a certain way. If God would have given that to me, what a horrible mess it would have turned into. Because his motives weren't right. And James is saying essentially the same thing here. Sometimes we think we know best what we should pray. And so therefore we launch out just telling God exactly what he should do. Some of these prayers, if we're really honest with ourselves, are driven by motives that are less than pure. We want things that will make us feel good or things that we think we want or need in that moment. Sometimes you'll ask and ask and ask and yet if your motives or intentions are all wrong, sometimes it's God's incredible grace that he says no and does not answer that prayer. Now James is going to use a series of images to help us understand what he's pointing at. Because he's not saying that just because a prayer went unanswered that it was about your motives and you should examine your heart really deeply and there was something going on in your life. That's not what he's after at all. He's just saying sometimes we want to be careful about the fact of thinking that we know better than Almighty, the Almighty as to what he should do in a given situation. And so James creates a spectrum, a series of spectrums actually, to help us get this point across. And he comes on pretty intensely in this reading as we continue in James chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. He's talked about them getting things all wrong and then he goes and says, you are an adulterer or adulteress. Don't you realize friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I will say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you are making yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say the spirit that God has placed within us is filled with envy or jealousy on our behalf? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires as the scriptures say, and here he's quoting Proverbs chapter three, God opposes the proud, but he favors or he gives grace to the humble. So our first question was, why are you fighting? And we examine our motives in that. The second question is about uh, unanswered prayer. Why do some prayers go unanswered? That's about the vertical nature, maybe something in our relationship with God, uh, in our motives and telling God what to do. And then the third part deals with what's going on inside of our own hearts and our own minds, our interior world. And James paints this picture of a battle, of a tension that leaves us asking, why sometimes in my own life do I feel so torn, so, so ripped between a number of different options and decisions on a spectrum? Remember that James likes to use his powerful images or words to hold up that mirror to our lives. He used that image in chapter one of a wave being just blown about and tossed by the sea, very fickle. And he says, you don't want to be like that. That's like double-mindedness. You don't want to be that kind of person. You want to have a rudder, a sense of stability in a relationship with God and others so that you're not getting tossed around all the time. And then he used the word picture of a mirror to hold up to our lives. And now he's using the word uh, uh, around fidelity or infidelity, adultery. 
James is saying, the more place you give in your life and in your heart to the things that we talked about last weekend, jealousy, selfishness, boasting, lying, ungodly ambition, the less place you have in your heart for a relationship with God. This past weekend, or this past spring rather, at Jericho, if you're around, you remember we went through the Old Testament book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, the primary picture that emerges of God is as a faithful and loving husband who's waiting and longing for the ones who have walked away from him in relationship to return. He's jealous in all of the right ways because you and I play the part so often of the unfaithful spouse when we give place in our lives to things that come between us and God. And James says, the more place you give to those things in your life, the further away you're stepping away from fidelity and into infidelity. And you're committing spiritual adultery. Unfaithfulness to a relationship with God. And this is why James says that friendship with the world creates a wedge between us and God. Now he's not talking here about people who live in the world that don't know God, whose lives exist apart from God and a knowledge of him. He's saying, he's not saying, well, don't be friends with those people. What he's talking about when he uses the word world is talking about the world and its systems and its uh, ideologies and its influence that is apart from and would set us on a course apart from God. This is what James is talking about earlier about divided loyalties or double-mindedness. James is saying you're double-minded if you, for example, come into a setting like this on a Sunday morning and you lift your hands in passionate worship and you say, yes, God, I love you. I, I will serve you. I will follow you all the days of my life. And then you go out and from Sunday afternoon until the next Sunday morning, you live however you want and think that by participating in a religious activity that somehow you're saying to God, ah, I'm totally, I'm in friendship with you, God. God's saying that is taking steps towards spiritual adultery. That level of incongruity, that level of double-mindedness, James points out in how you live, is incongruent with a person who says, I, yeah, I'm a friend of God. I'm walking in deep and close relationship with him. Because James says you can't actually say I am a friend of God, but give your life wholly to the values, systems, and vision that the world purports. The evidence of this will be, and James does this over and over and over again, will be in the way in which you live, in your actions, not just in what you say. It'll come out in very, very practical ways. It'll come out in how you handle your money, whether there's generosity that's flowing from you into the lives of other people. It'll come out in how you treat people around you, how you organize your time and your calendar, how you deal with adversity, how you speak to people when you're in conflict with them in countless other ways. And I think the reason that James uses such strongly worded language here in this text 
is to help us understand that the fundamental posture of a growing disciple, a person who has not just said yes to Jesus, but who says, God, I want to walk in ongoing depth of relationship with you. If I say I love God and I want to make choices to orient my life toward him, then God's spirit is living in me and active in my life. And then James says, God's beginning to give you and I the grace that's necessary to stand against these evil desires. And this is incredibly good news when we're feeling torn and when we're feeling tempted like we talked about in chapter one. Because I know on my own initiative, I cannot, I cannot resist the evil one when he comes against me every time. It's just not possible because the strength of just doing it in my own strength isn't going to win the day. The Bible's clear that you and I cannot meet the demands of God's holy jealousy left to our own devices. And so left to our own devices, we're gonna flirt with the world. We're gonna, when that friendship's gonna turn into something more complicated and more damaging over time. And so we're reminded here that God doesn't just say, well, you need to be faithful with me. And then we have to say, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna will myself to do that, God. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to stay faithful to you. We're reminded not only of the standard, but also the means for living in congruence with it. And that is God's grace poured out on your heart and my heart. It's completely adequate to meet the demands that God places on us. The bands of his holy jealousy. I love the way that St. Augustine puts this in his writings. God gives, Augustine says, what he demands. God doesn't demand something of you and then not gift you with his grace to be able to live in congruence with his demands. And so you and I have the incredibly simple but incredibly complicated thing that we have to do in order to experience this grace and draw close to God, we have to humble ourselves. And this is what James says in chapter four, verses seven to 10. He says, so if God opposes the proud, favors the humble, then humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God, relational language again, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow. Let there be deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Because when you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up in honor. See, James has already told us in chapter one that God favors the lowly. And he's told us in chapter three that wisdom and humility live together in a person's life. And so here he gives us a series of actions that wouldn't just Uh, be adequate to say that we want to draw close to God. He says there's, there's some very specific things you can do to draw close to God that would demonstrate humility. Not just again saying you're humble, 
But why is humility so important and how do you actually go about living it out? Well, humility is so vital because that is what brings us close to God. Through our words, through our actions, it demonstrates that we increasingly desire to surrender our lives to his spirit and allow his spirit to shape our hearts. I like the way that the New Century Version translates uh, verse 7. It says, give yourself completely to God. And this is a picture of humility. Humility is so vital because it demonstrates our willingness to totally surrender to God's power in our lives and let his spirit do the work that he wants to do. See, when I humble myself before God, it demonstrates that I want to get rid of the sins and the evil desires that cling to my hands and to my heart. It demonstrates that I want to get rid of anything that would stand in the way of a relationship, a vitalized relationship between myself and God. And this is what James is talking about when he's talking here about deep sorrow and grief. He's not saying we should wallow in morbid depressiveness over our sins as some kind of penitence to prove to God how sorry we really are. But he's saying you need to act in such a way that you recognize how much damage your pride does to your relationship with with God and with other people. And you need to demonstrate that. And so if there's relational rifts that happen, you need to not just say, oh, I'm sorry for it, and then just continue to act in a way. You need to live in such a way that there's congruence with that. Again, with toddlers, when you make them actually sit them down and say, it's very easy for them to say, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, and just kind of go on to the next thing. But deep repentance actually is evidenced in the way in which they conduct and continue to conduct themselves. And James is saying much the same thing here. Are we actually demonstrably sorry when we wound God and when we wound others? Or do we just say, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. I've asked for forgiveness. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, isn't it? And we just keep going on doing whatever we want. Because humility as James lays it out for us, demands something much deeper of us. It demands a total reversal of our lives and a total surrender. I love the way contemporary Catholic writer, Sister Joan Chitsitter, asks the question why humility is so important. She's written a lot on this, and she says this, humility is not a rejection, not a false rejection of God's gifts, but it is the acknowledgement that God's gifts that he has poured into my life and his grace, I have been given them for others. Humility is the total continuing surrender to God's power in my life and in the lives of those around me. Humility is not just saying oh, I, I want to live more humbly, God. It's actually taking steps of inviting God's Holy Spirit to search our lives in repentance and ask God, is there anything in my life that you need to speak to me about? And so we're going to move into a time of worship and response in song 
in a few minutes. And I'm going to ask you to spend time considering the question, are there areas of your life that you find particularly challenging to submit to God? Maybe for you it's a broken relationship. And maybe your pride is screaming out, that person is in the wrong and they need to come and ask me for forgiveness. But humility would invite you to go and be reconciled with them. Maybe it's something you've been praying for and asking God for. And you're beginning to realize that perhaps you need to invite God to search your heart and see if your motives for that, particularly prayer, that particular prayer are pure or if they're tainted in some way. Perhaps it's an area of sin in your life that keeps cropping up no matter how hard you try and you feel like, man, I just keep giving in to that time and time and time again. I mean, I just keep getting angry. I keep giving in to sexual sin and temptation. I keep giving in to gluttony. I keep giving in to pride. I keep getting trapped up in this. Maybe you need to ask God for strength to resist the devil. And you need to pray a humble prayer and say, God, I need to acknowledge yet again, I cannot resist this on my own strength. I need you. When you say those three simple words, God, I need you, you're humbling yourself before God. You're allowing his grace then to flow into your life because God wants to give you the grace to resist the devil. He wants to lift you up, but none of this comes if you and I do not live out the wisdom of humility. If we don't actively invite God into this process and allow his spirit to work in my life and in the lives of people around me. And it's interesting to me that one of the historical ways that the church has demonstrated this is actually through posture. And we're not really uh, hyper about this kind of stuff at Jericho Ridge, but a lot of traditions, the evidence of a soul that is expressing humility before God is actually a person who kneels and actually physically takes on the posture of saying, God, I want to submit myself to you yet again with open hands and open hearts. And so maybe today as we respond in worship, maybe for you, you actually want to take that posture just as a demonstration to say to God, I want to humble myself before you. I want to invite you to speak in those areas in my life. Another posture of humility can simply be just expressing it in worship and the songs that we sing are chosen to give voice to those desires and intentions. Maybe for you, you want to lift your hands and say, God, I humble myself. I want to hold out my life and everything that I am, everything that you have given me and receive it as a gracious gift from you and I want to say thank you for it. Maybe you want to come to the prayer team and say thank and uh, spend time thanking God for something that he is continuing to do in your life. Deb Jarvis and myself will be over here on the far side and Ruth Ellen and Jared Crosley will be over here on the far side and we would invite you as Dustin and the team come and lead us in worship and song to head over and pray with us. We would invite you to celebrate what God is doing or pray for grace in a difficult situation that you find yourself in. And so today... Let's not just sing about drawing near to God, 
Let's actually do it today. Or if I was to phrase it as a question, why not actually do it today? Let me pray for you as we engage in worship. God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit at work in our hearts, in our lives, in our world, drawing us back to you, pointing out things in our hearts, uh, areas of pride, areas of unrepentance. And Jesus, we are grateful for that work because left on our own, those places can get so hard and so calloused that we don't even pay attention to them anymore. And so, Father, we pray that your grace would continue to do its work in each of our lives. Do your work in my heart, in my life, Father. Gifting me with grace to resist the evil one. Gifting us with grace to speak peaceably to people around us. Gifting us with courage to reconcile relationships and to initiate. Gifting us, Father, by your spirit with wisdom to deal with the situations of life in day-to-day challenges. And so, Father, we want to take a position, a posture here as a gathered community of humility. And so, Jesus, as we respond to you today, would you pour out your grace? Gift us with grace, Jesus, in this place today as we come to you in humility. In the name of Jesus, the Son, we ask it. We pray and say amen. Amen. Dustin and the team are going to lead us in worship. I'd invite you, if you'd like to kneel, you'd be more than welcome to. At this time, there's nothing particularly super spiritual about kneeling, but it is yet one expression that you can take to say, God, I desire to evidence a posture in my body that I'm taking in my spirit. And the same thing with raising your hands or responding. If you want to go and pray for people around you, we would also encourage and invite you to do that at this time. Let's respond to God.